And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We're at the state capitol today, and we're focused on Minnesota politics this hour. Thanks so much for tuning in. Another school shooting caught the attention of the nation this week, this time in Nashville. It left three children and three adults who worked at the school dead, as well as the perpetrator who was killed by police. And at the Minnesota Capitol this week, one of the big budget bills taking shape covers public safety. The main thing it does is fund the state departments of corrections and public safety for the next two years. But the House bill also contains a host of policy provisions, including two new measures aimed at dealing with gun violence. We're going to talk about that public safety bill now with the House sponsor, DFL Representative Kelly Moeller of Shoreview, who chairs the House Public Safety Finance and Policy Committee. And also here is the lead Republican on the committee, Representative Paul Novotny of Elk River. Thanks so much to both of you for taking the time to do this today. Representative Moeller, I wonder if we could start with you and some of the uh, language on guns in the bill. First of all, uh, what's called the Enhanced Risk Protection Order, sometimes called the Red Flag Law. That would allow firearms to be temporarily taken away from people who are deemed by a judge to be a danger to themselves or others. Why is it important for Minnesota to have a law like that? Hi there. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, inviting me to speak with you today. And I'm really um, glad to talk about this great bill, including the extremist protection order provision. Um, it is really important to have this. We know that um, gun violence is at an all-time high. Um, firearms are the leading cause of death of children and teens in the U.S. We also know that suicide by firearms um, is also very lethal and very high. And this bill gives the opportunity for law enforcement or family members to petition a court in order to remove these funds from someone if it's established that they present an immediate and present danger of bodily harm to others or to taking their own lives. And the states that have had these uh, red states and blue states across the nation have had a a lot of uh, success in their enactment. And Representative Paul Novotny, I think it's uh, 19 other states uh, have this law already. Um, Are you concerned about doing it here in Minnesota? I'm concerned the way it's currently written, yes. What's wrong with the way it's currently written? Well, our biggest objection is the ex parte orders. Um, As you probably know, the the ability of uh, a person to be ordered by the courts to surrender their firearms is in statute already um, following a hearing. Uh, Our biggest objection on the red flag laws is the fact that, uh, as I said, it's the ex parte part without them having a chance to defend themselves. And the second part of the obligation or or objection is that you're talking about someone using the language from the bill that... uh, poses a significant danger of bodily harm to other persons or is a significant risk of suicide by possessing a firearm. If that ex parte order is granted, the courts then give them 24 hours to comply with the order. Uh, Our assertion is that if someone is that much of a risk to themselves, that they should be not just separated from the firearms, they should get help. Um, There's plenty other ways that um, if they're uh, a threat to themselves, that they can hurt themselves. 
just removing the guns and leaving them without any help or assistance or treatment uh, isn't solving the problem. Uh, what about that, Representative Moeller? Uh, does there need to be more language uh, on this provision to, uh, to actually get some people help if they need it? Yeah, thanks for that. Well, there are other um, ways to help people uh, with mental health, and those can be traveling in other bills and other statutory language. This is the, the public safety bill, and so that's why we're dealing with the extreme risk protection orders here. And I'll just note that those ex parte orders that were mentioned are very similar to domestic violence protection orders, and they've been upheld on due process challenges um, around the country. So just wanted to make sure that was clear. Mm-hmm. And how would it work um, if uh, an order like this was granted by a court? Who would actually have to take the guns away, Representative Mueller? Yeah, so if the court um, issues that order, then the local law enforcement, the court also issues um, a warrant to the local law enforcement agency to to take possession of the firearms as soon as practical. Um, and then the respondent also has an option to voluntarily comply with the order. Mm-hmm. So they could bring the guns themselves somewhere to, to just out of their possession. Right, to get them out of their possession. Um, Representative Novotny, you're a former law enforcement officer. Um, do you have concerns about uh, police going into a situation where someone's been determined to be dangerous and having to to confront them about their weapons? Uh, yeah, obviously it's a concern, but it's something, as uh, Chair Moeller stated, that's already done with the ex parte order for protections. And uh, even if they're not uh, ex parte, they're still, these orders are put out with the standard order for protection under domestic situations. Um, mm-hmm. It does create a, you know, uh, uh, an oppositional relationship with the person and also creates a responsibility of who's going to be able to um, successfully disarm that person. And, you know, what is the liability of uh, officers if they uh, do not successfully get all the firearms? The I know, I know there's exclusions and best effort, but uh, that's, that's a trap that I think is just being set for making officers liability if they don't do what the court deems to be due diligence when they absolutely have. Hmm. Um, and uh, Representative Mueller, we mentioned that a number of other states already have laws like this. Are they working in the other states? Are they are they used very often? Uh, what's the effect been? Yeah, so um, I've had the opportunity to sit in some calls with law enforcement from other states who have seen success. I'm thinking especially of Virginia, um, that they have been able to um, safely get a number of these firearms out of the hands of people who, who shouldn't have them. And Florida um, actually has had success with this. Their sheriff. Um, strongly support this law, and they um, say that it's really impacted the suicide rate, um, especially in rural areas. I know that Indiana saw a 7.5% decrease in firearm suicides in the 10 years following its enactment. Um, Some data around Connecticut seeing about a 14% decrease 
Um, and so, you know, like I said, some of these states are red states as well. And once they have them enacted, they've seen new success and, and many law enforcement uh, officials in those states have gotten on board. So, uh, Representative Novotny, is it the is it the philosophy of this law that you have a problem with, or is it just the way that it would be executed as it's specifically worded in the in the bill right now? We, my, our objections are the the language that's in the bill, and as I said before, the ex the ex parte type combined with the waiting periods and the delays and. Uh, I'd like to respond to the, the suicide and the, the statistics on what has happened in the past. You know, the states that have had this red flag order come in, uh, I, I would I would dispute the numbers that the suicide rates go down. They might go down from fire firearms, but you know, I, I, as we saw in Canada when they had a substantial clamp down on on firearms. Uh, the suicide by firearms went down, but the suicides actually went up, and they just went to a different method. Once again, just repeating my point that if if someone is in distress, taking the firearms away from the person isn't isn't the the best solution. It's getting the the help they need. Um, um and uh, Representative Moeller. Uh, what about that issue? I mean, uh, suicides by guns may have gone down in some other states, but are the numbers really there to show that this this is kind of thing is effective in in stopping uh, people if they really want to take their own lives? Yes, it is. Suicide by fire, firearms is the most lethal form of suicide. It has a ninety percent fatality rate. I think the other other types then are much lower, but they're less likely to be fatal on that attempt. Um, also, we look at the United States compared to other countries, and the suicide rate in the United States is nearly 12 times that of other high-income countries. Other countries have mental health issues, uh, just like we do in the United States, um, but we have gun suicide and, and high suicide and other forms of gun violence, frankly, that other countries don't experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and the federal government, if I'm not uh, mistaken, has given, has made available some grants to states uh, to help enact these laws. Would Minnesota take advantage of that uh, under this legislation, Representative Moeller? Yes, we would. And some of those conversations that um, I've been a part of were um, coordinated by the Biden administration with other states to learn about how their laws have been enacted and how we can best implement those in a way that fits Minnesota. Um, so we're already doing some of that coordination, but um, yes, to to trying to unlock other funds to be able to help us with this. Uh, that's DFL Representative Kelly Moeller of Shoreview. She chairs the House Public Safety and uh, Finance and Policy Committee at the state capitol. Also on the line with us today is the lead Republican on the committee, Representative Paul Novotny of Elk River. Uh, we're talking about public safety because it's been in the news this week and because uh, the, this committee has been working on a big budget bill that uh, goes next to the Ways and Means Committee and soon to the House floor. Um, let me bring up the other uh, gun measure that's included in the bill, and that would uh, expand uh, background checks, criminal background checks for private transfers and sales of handguns and military-style assault uh, rifles. Um, Representative Moeller, uh, 
how would that work, and why why does Minnesota need that one? Sure. Right now, there are only background checks if there's a transfer of firearms to the federally licensed dealer. And so we want to make sure that people who are transferring guns to other people not going through this dealer process, that the person that's getting the gun is not prohibited by law from having that firearm. And so what the criminal background check part of this bill does is it, it requires that that person-to-person transfer, that they record different information and keep that from, for themselves um, after they comply with the requirements there, or they could actually do that transfer from person-to-person at a federally licensed dealer if they wanted to. Um, so it gives them a couple of different options, but we just want to make sure that all, um, like you said, handguns and semi-automatic military-style assault weapons that are being transferred have this background check. Um, and then there are a number of exceptions in that are built into the law for certain situations. Uh, Representative Novotny, what are the concerns with this one? Uh, if you have to do this when you buy from a uh, retail outlet, why shouldn't uh, private transfers uh, be covered by background checks too? Well, Mike, that's a good question, and I'd like to point out that Minnesota statute already requires that. They require that you verify that the person has a permit to purchase or a permit to carry, and um, I I believe that's uh, either a misconception or a a misdirection. That's already in statute. There's already in statute provisions for private parties to report the transfer um, to their sheriff's office if if uh, they made certain restrictions um, as a person that was involved for many years in the issuance of the permit to carry and the revocation of permit to carry should something change in their status uh, due to maybe a domestic order or uh, a criminal conviction uh, and have had to knock on the door and retrieve someone's permit to carry or permit to purchase I can tell you that the statues are already there. We're just uh, adding a, an undue burden that really has not been an issue. We we see countless straw purchasers in the state of Minnesota, especially in Hennepin County, that have not been prosecuted. We had bills in the, the House this year that would increase the penalties for straw purchases. And that is in response to the Hennepin County attorney, uh, former Hennepin County attorney, who publicly stated it's it's not worth charging someone who does the straw purchases. There are bad actors that are doing bad things, and we would like to see them held responsible and, and them punished and have their rights to do these things taken away, um, as opposed to trying to fix something that isn't broke in the rest of the state. And well, I got a second, I, you know, I just want to push mm-hmm. back on something else that you, you've said, Mike, you, mm-hmm. even in the intro, uh, as you were leading up to this, uh, there was a talk that uh, guns are killing children in these mm-hmm. shootings. And you talked about the incident in Nashville and I thought it was interesting. Your phrasing, you said guns were killing children and then the police killed the perpetrator. Hmm. I would say in both cases, um, guns were used in the same way that 
a box cutter was used to fly a jet into the Twin Towers. We didn't have this conversation a month ago when a student was stabbed at a high school. We didn't say the knife killed a person. We said a person killed another person. We refer to that as violence. If a gun's involved, it's gun violence. Um, Hmm. I think the problem is violence. We need to address that violence. We need to address the the value of life, um, how people... Uh, view the sanctity of life, and, and I think that's part of the big problem that we're uh, dealing with right now, and that's being reflected. If you look at the the overwhelming use of first-person shooter games by these kids and young adults, um, I think it's desensitizing them, and uh, I don't think that's doing anyone any favors. So. Okay, well, I'll just say for the record, I, I said the school shooting uh, killed, left three children dead and three adults dead. But anyway, I don't want to get hung up on that, but I want to uh, ask Representative Moeller, um, what about uh, the contention that the background checks are already being done and that really this is putting a burden on a law-abiding Minnesotans or would put a burden on them and not get to the real problem, which is, people who are uh, using guns illegally, breaking laws that are already on the books? Um, It is, many of the comments are absolutely not true. Minnesota law currently does not require any kind of background check for those private transfers. It's only with the federally licensed dealers. Um, So I don't know where that's coming from, but that is absolutely not true. Um, Also, the notion that the county attorneys aren't prosecuting this and making some assertion about something the former Hennepin County attorney said. Let me be very clear. Also, as a prosecutor who's been a prosecutor for over 20 years, um, it's not the way it is. It's not a felony. And so the county attorneys don't handle cases that aren't felonies. Um, And so that's what they are referring to. And they're being very misleading on that. Um, The current law requires somebody to have knowledge that the person is going to use the gun unlawfully. Um, and so that is a very high burden to try to meet. And the, the bill here makes it so that people, when they're going to exchange a gun with somebody, they need to know by doing what's required in our bill to make sure that that person is eligible to possess a gun. So there currently aren't laws on the books that require any kinds of background checks between these private transfers. Um, I'll also just say, um, I, you know, we agree that we need to do things about prevention, and we have a lot of funding for gun violence prevention and other violence prevention in our bill. There are some really great programs out there. I can think of one, for example, at hospitals where a, gun, a victim of a gunshot comes in. They work with that victim and family members to try to prevent retaliatory um gun violence and provide the right support for people who are victims. So we do have a lot of violence prevention funding that is built into this bill as well. And Representative Novotny, I just want to ask you, um, don't a lot of the public opinion polls show that, that these measures are fairly popular with a lot of people? Um, and yet, uh, you seem to think that they wouldn't do any good. Do you think they would do any good at all to to stopping uh, some of the violence that that we've been seeing involving uh, firearms because they are, you know, they're dangerous weapons? 
Mike, I, I have uh, nothing but uh, an, an utmost respect for Chair Muller and uh, have, I respect your position. But Minnesota State Statute 624.7132 and 7131 have pretty strict um, and pretty specific guidance on when vehicles or uh, when firearms can be transferred, which type of firearms can be transferred without a notice to a sheriff or a uh, police department, or which ones do require that, and uh, then the methods when that would be required. So that is already in statute. Mm-hmm. But but do you think these these uh, proposed laws would do any good at all to uh, stopping some of the crime and violence uh, that we've seen uh, over the past few years? Are we talking about stopping crime, or are we trying to talk about people that are in mental distress? Well, uh, take your pick. I mean, we, we, it seems to be a problem in both with both uh, areas. Um, do you think these well, laws would do any are, good? Yeah, they are problems in both areas right now. We have, you know, especially during the COVID lockdown, we saw uh, a vast increase in the amount of uh, people that were experiencing mental distress and, and, uh, you know, hopefully we're coming out of that, but there's lingering effects from that. Um, would it make a difference? I, I go back to the original thing that I said, Mike, that there's already provisions that this is already in state statute and almost every thing that they're talking about and, they can't show that the laws that we have um, have been applied and um, where the problems are. I, I don't know of anyone that uh, had been brought up. You know, someone made an application, family me- family member that had a concern where they'd been turned down. Uh, if there was something that would show that, I'd be more than happy to look at it. Um, Representative Muller, I know you're focused on uh, getting this bill passed in the House, but do you think these gun measures will pass in the state Senate? Um, that I, you know, I don't know. Um, I'm very hopeful about them this year because they make a lot of sense. Um, we do have for the, the criminal background check bill, all the different law enforcement groups are on board um, in part because our law currently does not cover these. The statutes that were mentioned only apply to transfers between federally licensed dealers, and I'd be happy to provide that statute uh, sometime as well, that exclusion. But um, they have strong support, this, the criminal background check of all the different law enforcement groups and of Minnesotans, um, as was mentioned in some polling that was shown. This is just a common sense a measure. These are common sense measures to make sure that Minnesotans stay safe from gun violence. Uh, we've been spending uh, just about all our time talking about uh, these two gun uh, provisions. Uh, Representative Muller, you've said this bill as a whole would restore faith in the criminal justice system. What do you mean by that, and how would this bill do it? Right, yeah. Trust in our criminal justice system is so important for victims to report crimes, for witnesses to come forward, for juries to trust the experts that are testifying and to hold people accountable. And our current system has a broken trust in many different ways. And and our bill really recognizes that 
It has to see all aspects of the of the justice system, of our public safety system, in order to build that trust back up again. So we have um, substantial funding and transformational funding in many ways for victims. We have law enforcement funding in this bill. Recruiting and retention is so important to them. And my colleague, Representative Hewitt, came up with a great bill focused on recruiting and retention. We have prevention funding, as I mentioned before, that violence prevention prevention funding that's the Representative Frazier bill. Um, we've done a lot in this bill with with juveniles and with probation, recognizing the importance of rehabilitating people, and especially folks who are on probation, really trying to get them the services that they need in order um, to, to, to overcome whatever challenges they have and be productive members of society. And then we modernize many of our statutes. In addition to the gun legislation that we talked about, um, there's actually another piece of gun legislation that we didn't talk about, and that's increasing penalties for people who possess those switches or auto sears that turn um, guns into fully automatic guns. We've increased penalties for those. We're addressing the fentanyl crisis. We've increased penalties for the dealers. And then we're dealing with some other crimes that we're seeing, like organized retail, retail theft. So this is really a transformational bill, but also a balanced bill, and that we're looking at all the different aspects of the system. And Representative Novotny, do you think it's a good bill? Will it make Minnesota safer? Uh, I don't know what your definition of safe is. Um, I, I I would like to end the uh, this interview on a on a up note. Rep. Chair Moeller brought up the uh, the restrictions on um, conversion kits to convert some automatic firearms to fully automatic, and we're mm-hmm. seeing just a rash of that in the Twin Cities areas. Um, I absolutely uh, believe that that is an important bill, and that. Uh, I believe I was the number two co-signer on that bill, and I fully back that. Uh, any conversion kits, anything that is designed to bypass federal laws, um, you know, and make something fully automatic much more unsafe for the public, I, I think that should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Okay, well, uh, thanks for coming on today. That's uh, Paul Novotny. He's a state representative, Republican from Elk River, the ranking Republican on the Public Safety Policy and Finance Committee, and DFL Representative Kelly Moeller of Shoreview chairs the committee. Thanks again so much for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Thank you. And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for listening today. Republicans in the Minnesota Senate said again this week they will vote for a big public construction bill funded by bond sales, but only if DFLers eliminate state taxes on Social Security, put more money into the bonding bill for roads and bridges, spend more on nursing homes and ag programs. Democrats, meanwhile, are moving ahead with plans to pay for construction projects with cash rather than bonds. This is all after a $1.5 billion bonding plan that passed easily in the Minnesota House failed in the Minnesota Senate because no Republicans voted for it. A bonding bill needs a 60% supermajority to pass, while a cash bill needs only a simple majority. Now, here to update the situation and try to make sense of all of this for us is the chair of the Senate Capital Investment Committee, DFL Senator Sandy Pappas of St. Paul. Senator, thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me here, Mike. I know uh, there's about $2.3 billion targeted for an all-cash construction plan. 
Are you just going full speed ahead on that now, or is there still a chance that this bonding bill could come back for a vote? Well, you know, hope springs eternal. Um, if the Republicans have buyer's remorse and decide they want to come back to the table and negotiate in good faith, um, but we will only negotiate within a bonding bill. Um, linking it with other issues in the past has, at the end of session is doomed bonding bills, and I'm just determined that I will work with my colleagues, and I did work with my colleagues in January and February and into March to uh, come up with a bonding bill, which we did, um, that is fair uh, – to all Minnesotans. It's half rural, half metro, half DFL, half GOP. Um, we very much had a collaborative process in developing it. A lot of it was based on the bill that was negotiated by Senator Bach last year with the House. And um, I'm just, I was super disappointed that um, they shot it down. And so now, like you said, we're moving ahead with an all-cash bill. Well, just give uh, the folks who are listening a, a a sense of what we're talking about here. This is work on uh, public buildings at colleges, universities, uh, water treatment plants, local road projects. Why is it so important to pass a bill like this? Well, absolutely. These are important essential infrastructure items that everyone across the state needs. So we didn't pass a bonding bill in on 2021 or 2022. Um, and uh, we, we, you know, we passed one in 2020. We skipped 2016. We just can't skip years because there's just too much need out there. Um, MMB Management and Budget told us that they had requests for $5.5 billion in infrastructure projects that went through their process. And now we have many more bills coming in every day. I had 500 bills in my committee. My committee meetings, I hear, you know, 40 to 50 bills at a time, four minutes each, because there's just such a tremendous need. Hmm. And I know that some of the Republicans on the committee have expressed concern uh, after the the big bill failed that uh, as you're putting together a cash bill, you're not considering projects in their districts. You're only considering projects in DFL districts. Why is that? Well, before we took up the bonding bill, we heard um, almost 100 only Republican districts and almost 100 bills in Republican districts, mostly wastewater treatment. We focused on that because we wanted to make sure that it was clear that um, this is the need out there in greater Minnesota and that we're very, very open to that. We realize how important it is to these small communities. I also met individually or in small groups with Republicans to, again, remind them that I'm really eager to include their projects, to, to I believe in them. It breaks my heart not to help these small communities, um, but that the reality is you have to vote for the Bonnie Bill in order to do that. And um, I also told Senator Housley that we have set aside $275 million for the Republican caucus for her to collaborate with Senator Erdahl for just local projects on top of the state agency projects that are very important to them, like local roads and bridges. Um, she refused to ever give me a list. So Senator Erdahl then provided that list. The House overwhelmingly supported it, and the Senate shot it down. The Senate GOP shot it down. So by not considering their projects now, are, is this a hardball tactic to try to get people in their districts to put some pressure on them to come back to the table? Or, or, or are you, what, what's the strategy? Well, I mean, I have to have a partner. If I don't have a Republican caucus that's willing to partner with me or, you know, apparently doesn't care about their local communities, then 
I have to work with um, communities and legislators that do care and do want a bonding bill. So I think that's the point, is that um, the DFLers in the Senate desperately want a bonding bill. They have plenty of needs, and that's who I'm going to work with. And if you um, somehow were to get back to bonding instead of cash, would that be less expensive because it costs less to service the debt than to pay for the projects outright? And would that free up some money to bargain with, or, or is is it all kind of the same thing? Well, in the short term, um, it, it takes less cash because you're bonding over many years, mm-hmm. and people over you know the next generation are contributing to pay for that project. I mean, you do have to pay the interest, mm-hmm. and the interest has gone up. Um, and construction costs is going up 1% a month, I'm told. So it's really important that we fund these projects. A lot of them are shovel-ready uh, and are you know, kind of ready to go. Um, so delay is not useful. That's why we wanted to do a really early bonding bill. Because mm-hmm. usually it's the last thing you do, right? Well, usual may not have been the best way to do things. I think we have to approach this differently, which is why I tried to do an early bonding bill. I tried to explain that this was based on last year, that um, we can't link it with other issues because that could just doom it all together. So please work with me now to negotiate a fair bonding bill, which I think we had, and I just couldn't get it over the finish line. So um, are there negotiations going on uh, anywhere, the leadership or you or anybody uh, trying to resolve this and trying to get them to vote for bonding? or I mean, they put this plan out. It sounds like you pretty much rejected their plan. So well, what happened? A, there's a few letters going back and forth, and the Republicans have been holding press conferences, which is not a very good way to negotiate a bill. And in one of their offers, they said, can you put more money into, ro- into local roads and bridges? And I said, yes. I mean, again, that's within the bonding bill. You know, if the leadership is willing to, you know, and they're willing to go higher in bonds, it was them that put the limit of $1.5 billion in bonds. The Republicans said they were reluctant to go to $1.5. They wanted $1.1, and we argued that we had inflation issues. So if they're willing to go to $1.7 in bonds and the leadership will give us more debt service money, I'm fine with doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then if it's not balanced, in that case, we can make up the difference in a cash bill. I'd love to keep working with them on a bonding bill and a cash bill. I'm just waiting for them to decide, yes, they really want to work with us in good faith and not tie it to other issues. Is there an advantage to doing it in bonding instead of cash or a, or a philosophical reason to do bonding instead of cash? Well, the philosophical reason, as I mentioned earlier, is that then future generations also contribute to the payments. Um, it's like, and it's like mortgaging a house. You know, you're paying it over time. Um, and then when you're short in cash, it's helpful to be able to have bonds. And when interest rates were low, it was a, a special disadvantage. Um, Yes, you know, theoretically, it could free up some more cash for other concerns like tax cuts, which they're, um, they want. Um, but I don't know. In the end, we have such a backlog of need and, and bonding. I, you know, I'd love to be able to do a 2.3 cash bill and then if the Republicans would work with me to do a bonding bill as well. So you said you wanted to do this quickly because mm-hmm. the costs are going up. Um, is there a deadline here where you'll just move ahead with a cash-only bill and all DFL projects, or or can it wait till the end of the session? No, we are currently moving ahead with an all-cash bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when would that come to the floor, or when you, would you be ready to vote on that? Uh, I, that's up to the leadership, but uh, we plan to finish 
um, Representative Lee and I plan to finish it over the break. So we would have a bill ready to go in April. Okay. So it could be very quick. Yes. And then it's we have all the budget bills to take up on the floor. So I don't know what the schedule would be for the floor. Okay, well, well, we'll keep our eye on it. Thanks so much for coming by today. All right, great to talk to you again. That's DFL Senator Sandy Pappas of St. Paul. She chairs the uh, Capital Investment Committee at the Minnesota Capitol. Support comes from the Bakken Museum. Bakken Museum Book Club begins on April 5th with a discussion of Sandeep Jahar's Heart, a History. Learn more and register now at thebakken.org slash calendar. This is Politics Friday. Let's listen now to some of the voices we heard at the Minnesota Capitol this week. When do we want to see the proper funding provided to end the epidemic of veteran suicide in the state of Minnesota? When do we want to see the funding to ensure not a single veteran has to sleep on the streets in a tent or under a bridge in the state of Minnesota? We expect to have these things done now. We have to put our money where our mouth is. And if we want to get to zero, we have to make the serious, strong investments that it takes to get us there. So today and every day, HIV lives do matter. Thank you. I got advice when I first got here that we don't typically legislate to fix a problem with one company or one specific thing, that a a bill that we would draft much like this would be to fix a more pervasive problem across multiple enterprises. This is like the largest, one of the largest and most profitable corporations in the world. And if they can't figure out how to do the most basic things to keep their workers safe, then we all should have something to say about that. We're not just looking out for Jeff Bezos to make his billions. We're, we're looking out for the people who are, in, who are there making Jeff Bezos his millions every day that their well-being matters too. PFAS, we know, actually directly impacts people's health. It does bioaccumulate in bodies. It's in our rain and snow. It's in our lakes. It's in our rivers and our streams. It's in our animals. It's in our fish. As legislators, our goal is to do what we can to care for the people who we serve. A way to do that is to hold the, the bad actors responsible because at the end of the day, our land is being poisoned and so are our bodies. I'm here today to urge that the legislature address the issue of deepfakes, in particular those that depict sexual content or are used to influence the outcome of an election. This has serious implications for privacy, free speech, and the integrity of our elections. To address these challenges, I believe that it is necessary for legislation to be enacted to regulate the distribution of deepfakes. This issue is a serious and growing concern that demands immediate action. I urge this body to take steps to protect the privacy, free speech, and democratic rights of all citizens. Mr. Speaker, every word that I just said uh, from the beginning to now uh, was written for me 
uh, by the artificial intelligence service ChatGPT as a result of a, a one-sentence prompt that my legislative assistant put into ChatGPT. Well, therein lies the problem, Mr. Speaker. I've been scouring the rules, trying to figure out if there's a rule against reading a ChatGPT speech on the Minnesota floor. No, there's not. Well, Mr. Speaker, uh, in spite of being able to find uh, anything in the rules regarding this, I have to congratulate uh, Representative Stevenson on his best speech of the year. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, I rise just to uh, a point of order or a clarification. For some of us, it's not spring break. For some of us, it's Easter, Holy Week, and Passover. So uh, I don't know about you, uh, Speaker Long, or uh, Majority Leader. I'm going to go and take a break so I can be with my family during the Easter holiday and Passover. So if Minnesotans are watching, uh, personally, at least the 13 years I've been here, we're not going on a spring break by any stretch of the imagination. We're breaking for the holy week of Easter and Passover. And that is the purpose, at least in my vote, is why we're breaking. And frankly, I don't think we're breaking long enough. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. This is the motion that would allow us to take our spring break next week for whatever religious holiday or non-religious occasion you may want to pursue. Just some of the voices we heard at the Minnesota Capitol this week. As we close our program, I'm joined, as always, by NPR News Capitol reporters Brian Baxt and Dana Ferguson to help analyze what happened this week and what's coming next. Thanks for being here, both of you. Um, hard to not mention something that happened yesterday. Uh, Donald Trump indicted. The first time this has ever happened to a former president. Um, Brian, any idea what this is all going to add up to as we start uh, moving toward 2024? Well, Donald Trump was going to be a big figure in our coming months. He's running for president again. This just proves that he'll be a constant figure in our in our living rooms, on our radios, TVs, everything. As this case plays out, every detail will get a lot of attention. And so Donald Trump will get a lot of attention, and he'll kind of suck up a lot of the political oxygen again. And Dana, he is the frontrunner for the Republican nomination, at least at this point. Uh, do you have any idea where he stands with Minnesota Republicans? I think his Republican allies here are still wanting to make sure that he gets a fair trial, not jumping to any sort of conclusions just based on this. Um, but it's hard to not want to distance yourself a little bit when something of this magnitude comes up, um, especially because it's history making. No other president has experienced this before. So it'll be a matter of sort of talking to them and just seeing in the next several weeks or months where folks here stand when it comes to whether they're going to stick with Team Trump or find someone else. Mm -hmm. And I guess uh, we'll have no choice but to watch it as it plays out the next few days, find out exactly what's in uh, those charges and exactly uh, how he responds to it. Sounds like Tuesday will be a big day. Okay, well, and speaking of 2024 and the president, uh, President Joe Biden will be in Fridley on Monday promoting his legislative record on clean energy, manufacturing, and jobs. Uh, Dana, is the, is the 2024 campaign started already? It sure seems that way and kind of surprising that they would come through Minnesota, but might as well see what folks are up to here and uh, – put his flag down, see if he can build up some support for the work that they've been doing in Washington. And in some ways, it's not surprising because Minnesota has kind of bought in, at least the, the Walls administration and the Democrats in charge of the legislature are pursuing a lot of climate and electric vehicle 
that type of legislation that closely aligns with the things that Biden will be talking about when he's here. Right. Uh, um, okay. Let's uh, turn away a little bit from national stuff. But uh, one other big news story, though, was that train derailment in Raymond uh, Thursday. Um, Brian, what's happening? Are there any new measures uh, moving uh, to improve rail safety, especially after that uh, terrible accident in uh, Ohio, East Palestine? There's been a lot of rail safety bills that have been introduced over the years here in Minnesota, and they're going to get a lot more attention, including this afternoon. There's a hearing on one bill that would require more regular training, not just by the railroads, but bringing in the town uh, fire chiefs and, and other emergency personnel for the areas that these freight trains carrying hazardous cargo go through. And it would require more tabletop exercises and full-scale drills. And it would put the onus on the railroads to be upfront with the state and these emergency responders about uh, their plans should something like this happen. And, and these, these events, the one in Ohio, the one here, one in North Dakota, are really going to give some steam to those bills. Just one of the many transportation issues being considered here uh, this session. Um, and the main action at the Capitol this week has been these budget bills rolling out, right? These big, huge bills and uh, Dana spending a ton of money. I mean, it, we were talking all year about the big surplus and everything, but when you see some of the amounts in these bills, it's really kind of uh, eye-popping. That it is, yeah. We're hearing discussions about these various pieces of the budget puzzle that are tens of millions to hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, um, and seeing the details of those come together in real time in some cases. Uh, so this week we've started to see just what is going to be moving forward in the budget and potentially what is going to get left behind. Um, and there are still some unanswered questions about whether there might be additional funding that goes toward areas uh, where folks say that they are not getting enough, they have big problems, and they don't feel like they're getting the amount that they should be. Um, but we do have roughly eight weeks left, so mm -hmm. I expect to hear a lot more. And uh, nursing homes in particular, right? Right. That's nursing homes, uh, disability service providers, and some folks who work in emergency food services say that coming out of the pandemic, they just have needs that are far outreaching what they are set to get in the budget budget targets. And we've heard from at least one chair that he is going to go back to the leaders and try to get some more funding beyond what they have set in his target. And Brian, uh, uh, schools are uh, big winners in all this, right? Absolutely. They're going to get a, at least $2 billion more in the coming two years and a few billion dollars after that in the, in the years that follow. They're one of the few areas where there's a lot of permanent spending built in, not just these one-time bursts of money. Uh, and, and a lot of that's going to flow through the, the per-pupil formula, the one that all schools get depending on their headcount and allows them to dictate a lot of where it goes. They're going to buy off some sp uh, special education uh, pressure that districts have been facing, some English language learner pressure that they've been facing. And this is one area where the one thing to watch is whether they link this education formula to inflation. The House wants to do it. The Senate hasn't done it yet. The administration really wants it because that will ensure that the, the meter keeps running up in the years to come and they don't and the school districts aren't necessarily feast or famine depending on the size of the surplus and who's in charge mm -hmm. and i just want to finish off a little bit uh with the issue we started the program with which is the these gun uh gun measures um dana uh, gabby giffords was at the capitol thursday 
uh, urging lawmakers to pass these. What do you think is going to happen with those? Um, There's still a little bit of a question mark around that. The governor and Senate leaders who are guiding that issue through the Capitol said we have kind of honed it down to the two bills that the legislators at the top of the hour really talked about, red flag provisions and universal background checks. They said that seems like as much as they could chew off this year. There are other measures that have fallen aside. Um, But they're still working on two greater Minnesota DFLers in the Senate who are still sort of up in the air. They don't know if they would support them at this point because their districts are more conservative leaning. Um, And you've had them on the show. Mm, Last week. Uh, But they're hopeful. They keep pointing to other states where these measures have been passed and seem to uh, create reductions in gun violence. So they're really hoping that this will be the year. And they say, even if it's not, they're going to keep pushing to get them through eventually. And Brian, what's coming up next week? Well, we heard about the upcoming spring break, Easter break, call it what you will, but it's time off and it starts on Wednesday. Lawmakers are going to be back home in their districts probably through the following Monday. I think they come back, they'll trickle back on Tuesday. So they're really making these final pushes to get these budget bills at least to the next steps. So once they come back, they can really go full gear on getting the votes on those. Expect super long debates. (laughs) Super long debates after a, a quick break. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Brian Bax, Dana Ferguson. That's our Friday program. Matthew Alvarez is our producer. Jess Berg, Josh Savage, Alex Simpson all helped out on the technical side this week. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Have a great weekend. We'll see you again here next week. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for listening to the Politics Friday podcast on NPR News. If you want to catch the show live on the radio, tune in each Friday at noon. Join us for interviews with lawmakers and conversations about what's been happening at the Capitol and beyond.